Hey listeners, I'm Marissa Polowitz. And I'm Olivia Ashe. And we're excited to co-host today's episode, What Judges Feel, Judicial Emotion and Why It Matters. I'm sure many of our listeners have been led to believe that judges and lawyers should suppress and ignore emotion in favor of rationality. And maybe even that emotions and rational thought are diametrically opposed to the point of being mutually exclusive. I'm excited because today's guest is Vanderbilt Law Professor Terry Moreau. For the past 10 years, Terry has delved deep into judicial communities in both the U.S. and Canada to better understand the role that emotions play in the work of judges. Terry Maroney investigates the intersection of law and emotion. She is also a scholar of criminal law with specializations in wrongful convictions and in juvenile justice. Professor Maroney's work on the role of emotion in judicial behavior and decision-making forms the backbone of her scholarly focus. Weaving together legal analysis with the psychology, sociology, and philosophy of emotion, her work illuminates how emotional experiences, dynamics, and their management interact with the constraints and demands of varied judicial roles with deep implications for judges and the public they serve. Maroney's many publications in this area, which include What We Talk About When We Talk About Judicial Temperament, Angry Judges, Emotional Regulation and Judicial Behavior, and the persistent cultural script of judicial dispassion have been widely read among the U.S. judiciary. She frequently consults with and presents to judicial audiences in both the U.S. and abroad. With Judge Jeremy Fogel, now retired, and the Federal Judicial Center, she co-founded a novel incentive seminar focused on the human side of judging, now offered regularly to mid-career federal judges. Let's get into it. Terry, one of the things that you address in your scholarship is the lack of a cohesive definition of judicial temperament, both what temperament means within the context of judging and also why it's important. Could you share with listeners what you're referring to when you talk about and study judicial temperament? Absolutely. And thanks again for having me on this podcast. I'm excited to talk with y'all. Historically, we've been very clear about the fact that judicial temperament is important in some way because we do talk about it a lot. Um, It's something that we try to assess at every single stage of a judge's career um, when, for example, they're being appointed or elected in the first place, if they're being retained, if they're being promoted to a higher position, such as from a district court to a court of appeals to the Supreme Court, Um, It's something that can be the basis of disciplinary actions or something that people praise at award ceremonies. So we seem consensed on the fact that it is a thing, it is some kind of thing and it's somehow very important. But we have historically left it at that and really failed to get specific about, well, what is it exactly and why is it so important? So what I've set out to do is treat judicial temperament as a psychological construct and use some of the tools of psychology, particularly affective developmental psychology, to help us understand what it is. So this is a long way of circling around, Marissa, back to your question. So what I propose is that we ought to think of judicial temperament in the same way that a psychologist would think about human temperament. 
because after all, judges are human and these concepts actually map fairly cleanly onto each other. So I think the first step is to not think of there being something unitary called a judicial temperament, as in the statement, so-and-so has or does not have a judicial temperament. I think that there are a range of temperaments that a person can bring to judging that will be at varying levels of fit with the demands of their job. So I think of it as sort of a continuum of acceptable temperaments in context. Um, so stick, we'll stick a pin in that and we'll talk about goodness of fit, I think, a little bit later. But fundamentally, what we're talking about when we talk about judicial temperament is a fairly deeply seated, relatively stable set of traits that a human being has that they bring to the work of judging. And that set of traits um, that we're looking at, because people have lots of traits, only some of them are temperamental. The most important temperamental traits for looking at judicial temperament have to do with emotional reactivity and self-regulatory capacity. I'm sure we'll unpack those as well. But a judge will, by the time they're old enough to be a judge, they will have become relatively stable. I won't say fixed because people change throughout the course of our lives. But all of us, by the time we're in adulthood, particularly by the time we're reaching or have reached middle age, will have a relatively stable set of traits that, that drive how we react to situations in the world and how we cope with situations in the world. And these are different. This is why person A confronted with the same situation as person B will tend to react in a, in a wildly different way. This is one of the fundamental ways that we distinguish people from one another. Um, and again, for judicial temperament, what we're really looking at is about emotions. Like what is the set of emotions with which a given person tends to react to the world? Do they tend to see the world in a relatively positive way and to react to it accordingly? Or do they tend to see the world in a relatively negative way and react to it accordingly. And no matter how, how they react to it, how well do they cope with challenges um, and with pushback from their environment? So again, this is a very long answer. It comes back to a short answer, which is again, it's this very specific deep-seated set of traits that any given human being is gonna bring to the work of judging. I'm going to stop there and let us start unpacking all of those things. Yeah, I find that really intriguing. I'm very curious to hear what sparked your interest in studying judicial emotion and something that, you know, seemed like a worthwhile area for you to kind of focus your attention on. Absolutely. So when I was in legal practice back, back in the day, and it's been a day now, um, I was very drawn to the human aspects of legal issues, of legal problems, and the way that the human beings who populate the legal system, including me, cope with and perceive things. And it's, it's when you're in legal practice, it's very obvious to you, I think, or it was at least very obvious to me, that this is a human-run system. Um, legal problems are only important because they affect people. Uh, people react to them very differently. Um, lawyers are people, we react to things differently and, and 
those differences have a lot of emotion packed up in them. Um, and our emotional reactions to particular types of legal issues I saw would color how we even perceived the issues, um, how important we thought they were, how well or how poorly we connected to the human beings whose lives or property or contract rights or whatever it is are being affected. Um, it affects your motivation to do the work. Are you going to stay up half the night working diligently on a case, not because you're forced to, but because you want to? Are you going to go to the mat for a particular issue and perhaps not another? Are you going to take it hard if you lose and be elated if you win? So all of these things are, are integral parts of how we think of law, how we think of law's impact on people, and, and how we practice law, that we don't talk about that very much. And I definitely saw that, that if that was true of lawyers, it's clearly true of judges. I mean, if you appear in front of judges, you'll see a number of things. One, they're humans, and you kind of need to know the human you're in front of because it will affect everything, how they perceive what you're saying, how you need to address them, what kind of problems or opportunities you might anticipate with that judge. Um, every lawyer who's been in practice for a while has been at the receiving end of some bad behavior by judges and has also been on the receiving end of some kind behavior from judges. And then it's not, last point on this, it's not idiosyncratic, you know, like it's, it's very rare to be in front of a judge who you can't predict in some way in that regard. Judges have a set of traits. They are they are devolvable to one lawyer saying to another, this person, this judge is like this and finish that sentence, right? And of course, every judge is variable according to the situation, but not infinitely variable, right? So, so they have traits, those traits can be observed. Their traits are part of what drives their behavior. Their behavior is part of what drives what happens in any given case and how people feel treated. So this is, so true in legal practice as it's somewhat anodyne even to point it out. Um, this is part of why people pay lawyers for their expertise is because lawyers know their judges and they kind of know how to predict how a judge is likely to receive a particular thing. So when I went into academia and I was writing about issues of emotion and law, I was a little shocked to find out that, that the, there just wasn't a lot of scholarship on what seemed to me like possibly the most important part of judging, which is the human part. So that's what I've been doing now for low these many years. And uh, for a long time, I was very focused on what I would characterize as emotional episodes in judging, like judges reacting with extreme anger, the kind of, you know, judges who throw things at people, who scream at litigants, who challenge them to fights in the hallway. Um, who cut them off, who ridicule them, use sarcasm, um, or judges who respond to situations with incredible displays of kindness or empathy. And the longer I did this sort of episodic work about judges and emotions, I kept coming back to this idea about, the again, the traits um, and the package, the sort of the emotional reactivity and regulatory package of any given judge and the more I thought about that, I, I thought I'm pretty sure that's what we're talking about when we talk about temperament. And then I started trying to, I was like, well, I'll just read all the scholarship that's ever been written about judicial temperament. And there's not very much actually. And it's very, um, 
it tends to the discussion, whether it's scholarship or practice orientation, like say a judicial temperament assessment guide from the American Bar Association, it tends to fall, I found, into one of two camps. Either people talk about judicial temperament as what I think of as a laundry list, which is just like, here's a list of stuff we like and here's, um, but without anything like really divergent lists, you know, and sometimes they're, they're like kitchen sink lists, you know, it's just like everything you can think of about the human pop, you know, part of a judge will end up in those lists. And that's not very helpful because it doesn't tell you anything about like why this list, what ties these things together, um, how do we predict whether we're going to get these things we say we like, like displays of patience, compassion, level-headedness. Um, so that's one problem is that we have these kind of disorganized, not theorized laundry lists. And then the other part is what I call the cipher approach, which is some people just have it and you can tell. And that's actually even more common. Like if you read comments at, at judicial confirmation hearings, people tend to say just like, oh, she has a terrific judicial temperament or, or accuse somebody of having a terrible judicial temperament and everyone acts like that's a sufficient answer. So, um, you know, the scholarly mind abhors a vacuum, I guess. And so I was like, I think I'm pretty sure we can do better than that. Um, and I'm pretty sure the answer, since what we're talking about is something inside the person, I'm like, um, there's a whole discipline that looks at those things and it's called psychology. And if you're talking about temperament, you're talking about developmental and affective psychology. Affective psychology is what I do. So there you go. That's, that's how I got there. Um, and the hope again was like, I know we can do better than this. Like there is a there there. There is a thing called judicial temperament. We're not wrong. There are traits. There are bundles of traits that any given human being walks into judging with. And some of them are going to be very, very likely to produce the kinds of behaviors that make courts run well, that make people feel respected, um, that are would be predicted to promote um, compassion and resilience in the judge. And there's a bundle of traits people walk into that could easily be predicted to result in behaviors we don't like, like sarcasm and callousness, short-temperedness, volatility, uh, burnout, callousness. So that's what I'm about. I'm about trying to use the psychology to, to come up with a, a, a prediction that's grounded in something real. And that's, again, what I hope I've done here. Yeah. So the definition of temperament in this context is incredibly complex. And I know it that is. emotion is really only like a piece of that or a contributing right. factor of that. Um, you already addressed my question about, <clears throat> excuse me, how this plays out kind of in the, the greater world and in the greater legal space and courtroom specifically. But I'm curious as to your perspective, and it's, it probably aligns fairly well with what I think the world is teaching us in general um, as legal professionals. How are legal professionals taught to think about emotion within their work? Not well, um, <laughs> not well at all. And I like to think that this is changing, um, albeit slowly. 
very similar to the trajectory of medical education, actually. Um, lawyers and doctors um, tend to have been brought up in, in a training environment that has what some have called the hidden curriculum of emotional suppression. That sometimes you know, uh, law students and young lawyers are taught explicitly that the way to be a quote unquote good lawyer is to just learn how to cut your emotions off. Um, literally just like don't have them. And sometimes again, that's very explicit. Like your job here is, is literally to put your emotions to the side and just analyze the problem which it turns out is a frightfully hard thing to do. Um, and if you treat it as if it's an easy thing to do, we are encouraging ourselves to engage in very counterproductive emotion suppression tendencies, which will almost invariably come back to bite us. So it's a longer discussion, but so either we're, we're told explicitly that that's what it means to be a good lawyer, and then that carries over into even more what people are taught about what it means to be a good judge, right? For centuries, it's been presumed that literally the, the essence of being a good judge is something that Thomas Hobbes wrote in 1619 in Leviathan, which is a good judge is divested of all fear, anger, hatred, love. Um, basically, it, it, the meaning of being a good judge is, is to cut off your emotions. Um, effectively and consistently. Again, turns out that's actually a frightfully hard thing to do and not very productive. So either we're told that explicitly, and I'm sure both of you have gotten those messages um, as law students, or it's just in the water. Again, it's a hidden curriculum. It's the presumption of part of learning to think like a lawyer is to cut the emotional part off. And it's very common actually to kind of ridicule people for having say, you know, too much emotion in our thinking or arguments, right? So every, every, the trouble is, I think, is that every false destructive narrative that lasts for a long time has some nugget of something true within it that gives everybody just enough hook to like perpetuate it. So it is true that as lawyers, we learn a, a profoundly different set of analytic skills. And that part of it is being able to recognize which part of it is one thing and which part of it is another. So we do have to, for example, in any given case, if we feel highly sympathetic towards one argument or one party and highly antagonistic towards the other, we do have to kind of recognize that and we have to decide where to put that part while we analyze to make sure that we are kind of be bringing our best brains and our best hearts to a question. And sometimes you do have to override the sympathy part. In fact, quite often you do. Um, but that doesn't mean that you cut it off. And that doesn't mean that it's never relevant because it's actually often relevant. There are legal questions you literally can't answer um, like in a fourth amendment context, how humiliating was a particular search, for example, a strip search of a teenage girl at school, for example, you literally can't answer that legal question unless you put yourself in that child's shoes. You imagine what um, that situation must have felt like. You think about what does it mean to be humiliated? What does humiliation feel like? Right, so we're doing an incredible disservice of acting like something that we need to get skillful at 
which is balancing the emotion and the other aspects of our analytic selves, that's complex. And we're doing ourselves a disservice as if we pretend it's easy, just get rid of the emotion. And then we're also doing the law a disservice because then we have no tools for selectively bringing it back and using it. So, you know, one thing that I think it's important to realize about judges is judges were trained in the same way. And America all, you know, virtually all um, judges were lawyers. I, I'd say virtually all because there are some sorts of, um, for example, some, you know, very low level, say traffic court or small claims court judges in America are not lawyers, but um, most judges are lawyers. And so they've learned the exact same messages that every other lawyer has gotten through the hidden curriculum or explicitly. And then you keep on top of that, this cultural narrative that once you're a judge, you better be really, really, really good at chopping off your emotions. And you've got a real problem because what we're not doing is we're not equipping judges with the tools they need to manage the inevitable emotions that they will bring to the job and that the job will bring to them. Then you add in temperament. So some judges will, what, what, do we, what happens when we give people no instruction or bad instruction on how to handle the challenges of a very emotionally challenging job and how to produce within those challenges a very difficult to maintain set of behaviors like patience, courtesy, level-headedness, kindness. Um, if we're not helping people learn those skills, they're gonna just bring whatever, to, they're gonna bring whatever they've got um, and they're just gonna act the way feels natural to them to act in that scenario and that's temperament. The temperament is what fills in that gap. And if you've got a judge who comes in with what I think of as a relatively advantageous temperament, which is a high level of temperamental positivity, which is a propensity to feel contentment, satisfaction, kindness, compassion, um, and a person who's got just sort of blessed with relatively high trait le levels of emotion regulation so they can be flexible and handle different situations with you know, grace and responsivity to situations, then that person's gonna fill in that gap relatively well. And unfortunately, if we bring in a judge that has a relatively disadvantageous temperamental bundle, so that would be high negative emotionality, a propensity to see offense, to take offense, to be argumentative, to be short-tempered, to be more volatile, or potentially another iteration of this is to be excessively fearful um, and anxious, which can prevent you from actually doing the job well. And then coupled with that, relatively low levels of self-regulation, so they don't have a whole lot of flexibility. They have like kind of one emotion regulation tool, which is kind of like, don't have it, don't have it, don't have it. That, then that's what's gonna fill in the gap and they're probably gonna do a pretty poor job. Um, so anyway, there you go. No, Thank well, you so much, Terry. Yeah, that was excellent. Go ahead, Marissa. Yeah, I was just gonna say, we'll stick a pin in a lot of these different things, especially um, as it plays out kind of in the juvenile justice context. And I'll mm. hand it over to Olivia. I know she has a bunch of questions about this framework. Yeah, um, thank you so much for the invitation, just like, you know, to bring our best hearts and best minds as lawyers. I don't think that's something that we hear often. And 
um, I definitely feel for myself as a law student. It's in the water, the kind of take your emotion out of it. Um, And coming from myself, a very spiritual background, uh, being a master in divinity student, that was always like my curiosity, right? Like they call lawyers and attorneys counselors. And so I'm like, how can you be a counselor without emotion? And so I'm always trying to find, (laughs) yeah, right. You can't, I'm always trying to find my way back to like, how can I bring the appropriate amount of emotion? But like you mentioned, there really aren't any tools. That's not a class, unfortunately, on how you, how you bring that appropriate amount of emotion and sympathy to your legal work. Um, And so I'm really curious if you could share a little bit uh, more of some of the nitty gritty, I know we started to get into it about like the framework you propose for us thinking about judicial temperament. What is that framework uh, outside of, you know, you mentioned there's the, the laundry list method. Um, right. You've talked about these traits. So I just, yeah, what is that framework for thinking about judicial temperament? Yeah, absolutely. So if we're not just building a laundry list of behaviors we like and just assuming that there's some you know, consistency to them and we can predict who will engage in those behaviors or just being like, this is fundamentally mysterious, but we know it when we see it. If we're not doing either of those things, then what are we doing, right? So um, again, it's an idea that is simultaneously complex and simple, but the framework posits that the way we should think about judicial temperament is fundamentally the same way that a developmental psychologist thinks about human temperament more generally. And a lot of these studies, Olivia, actually have to do with babies and small children. Um, And so um, I'm not saying that we should ask like, what was the judge like when they were a baby? (laughs) Unfortunately, that that would be silly. And also it would not do the trick because they, you know, we're all quite different by the time we're middle-aged, but back to the babies. Um, if you think of two different children who have the same genetic makeup, more or less, and are raised in similar situations in a similar family, um, and think about uh, a parent who might say they came out completely different. Um, this is a very common human thing, right? There are certain things that they're not hardwired, they're still kind of softwired, but people come out differently. Um, And two of the fundamental ways in which human beings emerge differently at our very, very formative state is with what's called emotional reactivity on one hand and what's called self-regulation on the other hand. So these are sort of two fundamental axes that affect how all of us tend to experience the world and tend to react to the world. So emotional reactivity is the propensity to feel certain emotions more frequently than others and the speed and intensity with which we do so. So imagine again, a baby who, if there's a novel thing introduced into their environment, like a shaky toy in the face or a clown or something like that, um, some babies and children will tend to react very, very quickly and vehemently and negatively, like they'll just burst into screaming tears. Okay, so that's like one example where the baby right next to them might laugh and giggle and kind of warm up a little bit to the clown or the shaky toy or whatever. Um, So that's, those are kind of, again, kind of clownish examples in, in a way, but it's like, again, what emotions do you tend to bring to the world and how fast and how intense are they? 
And then the second part, so that's emotional reactivity. And it is true, like people tend to bring, and this goes for adults too, I'll say something about, you know, what happens in between. But if you think of just people, you know, um, if you think of yourself, you're like, do I tend to look at the world in a particular, with a, a particular emotional cast? Do I tend to assume the worst of a situation? Do, do certain things tend to make me more scared than they do other people? Do I tend to, right? So it's, it's all about what do you tend to feel in the universe? So that's emotional reactivity. Um, Self-regulation is how flexible and skillful are you at adjusting and coping? Um, again, if you think of a baby, one baby may have a very, very difficult time doing what's called self-soothing. Like if they're screaming hysterically at the clown, they can't calm themselves down very easily. They will eventually, but it's very hard for them. And another baby might get startled and then self-soothe very, very quickly. Right, so self-regulation is not all about down-regulating relation uh, emotion, but it's about skillfully handling these reactions that we have so that they fit well with our environment. Um, and again, if you just think about people you know, you can think a lot of their behavior actually revolves around these two axes, right? How do they tend to react to environmental stimuli? How quickly? Um, how vehemently and with what flavor, like sort of a generally positive flavor, generally negative flavor, and how well and how skillfully and how environment responsive do they tend to cope, right? A whole lot of human behavior comes down to those two axes. Is this making sense so far, Olivia? Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. So what, okay. I, what I'm understanding is I kind of have like the two branches for this framework, we have the reactivity and the regulation. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so I'm curious how, how you formed metrics, you know, under those two buckets. Right. And, um, and, and did you just choose a regulation that is kind of a basis that we know psychology looks at? Yes, and your bandwidth is a little low, so you might want to go video off for a little while, actually, um, just to preserve your sound. Yes, so, so your question is a very good one. So we do have these two buckets, as you say, or, you know, these kind of trait, trait axes, um, the, the reactivity and the regulation. And now you're asking, how does one actually measure these things um, in a way? What is it based on? So there's a whole rabbit hole we could go down there that I'm actually going to avoid momentarily, except to say that this is the stuff of developmental psychology, and um, it's extremely well um, fleshed out in the scholarship. And it's a great thing for law because it basically means that we can go to some kind of ground truth to the extent that any ground truth exists in science. This is a pretty good one, right? And we don't have to do all that work ourselves. We can say, wow, yes, it is true that these are actually, if you're looking at stable traits that will, that will drive behavior over the course of a lifetime, this is, this is the basis of it. So part of I think my function is to help law, again, not reinvent wheels, but to borrow perfectly good wheels that we need 
in people who have already put in all the, the decades of, of work of constructing them. So, but I also don't want us to just be like, oh, look, here is wheel, we use wheel, right? We do need to think about how does that actually translate to the world of judging? So let me use this, Olivia, as a chance to talk a little bit about development. So people don't just kind of get born with a temperament, you know, that's kind of soft wired. And then three or four decades later, they're, they're a judge and they have the exact same temperament. That's there's the developmental process um, will shape and be shaped by our start, our temperamental starting points, sometimes in fairly surprising ways. Um, but environment matters enormously. Different children with the same temperamental traits, if they have wildly different experiences growing up, which most, which people do, um, right? And it can be small things, even like birth order, it can be massive, massive things like growing up as a refugee in a country where you've witnessed a lot of violence or having a very coddled, um, a very coddled childhood um, in a world of privilege. Like it's kind of everything that happens to us will shape how our temperament builds us as, as adult humans. One important thing to realize though, is that um, the range of temperamental variation is not infinite. So there's a wonderful quote from my very favorite, very eminent developmental psychologist named Jerome Kagan that I would love to read here just because I think it captures this idea so well. Yes, please. Okay, so Kagan and his collaborator Snydman wrote, quote, one's temperament imposes a restraint on the possible outcomes. A low reactive infant might become a trial lawyer, investment banker, Navy pilot, but it is unlikely that he will become a frightened recluse. Condensed water vapor can, ah, sorry, condensed water vapor can, depending on local conditions, form a white billowy cloud, a mackerel sky, or a dense ground fog, but it cannot become an asteroid. Um, and so this is referred to as the envelope of possibility. So we come to the world with these temperamental traits that will interact with our environments within an envelope of possibility. And that envelope makes certain outcomes impossible or highly unlikely, but it makes a whole lot of other outcomes possible. So by the time we are grownups, and especially by the time we're old enough to be judges, um, our temperament will have evolved and, and been shaped by our world and will also have shaped the experiences we have in the world. But it will by that time be relatively fixed, right? The envelope of possibility and our, our movement within it will have stabilized enormously. So by the time we are grown, um, especially by the time we're in middle age, which is when most judges in America go on the bench, our temperaments are fairly stable. So there is a, what you see is more or less what you get phenomenon with a judge that is not true of a baby, right? So if you see a judge or a person who wants to be a judge, who has fairly clear reactivity traits and relatively clear regulatory traits, we actually are in a fairly strong position to predict how those traits are likely 
to interact with the challenges of judging and whether it's going to generate behaviors that we like um, because they make the system run well and they make people feel heard um, or are they going to generate behaviors that we don't like because they are antagonistic, arrogant, make people feel um, not heard, will generate acrimony within their judicial peer group, et cetera. So again, the game is all about what do traits predict about judicial behavior, you know? And the good news is we don't have to look at what they were like as babies. In fact, we need to not look at what judges were like as babies because we know for sure that they will have changed enormously. But we can look at how they are now. And we can say, okay, if a person is coming to the bench with, let's give sort of a, a generic, a, a generally advantageous set of judicial temperamental traits, which would be a propensity towards thinking kindly of other people. Um, this doesn't mean acting in a, in a kind way um, in terms of like you give people what they want or you override the law and you give and you sort of distribute goods as you see fit. No, but the propensity to just kind of think of human beings as worthwhile, as uh, worth caring about, right? You might think of this as sort of a, a caring set of emotional traits. Um, a propensity to feel satisfaction, even at small victories, a propensity to, um, again, just bring positivity, right? You might, again, think of this as sort of the positivity bundle of traits. And there's a wonderful affective psych psychologist named um, Barb Fredrickson who calls positivity um, a broaden and build set of propensities, the idea that when you have the, this very advantageous reactivity trait, which is to approach the world from a generally positive, kind, optimistic standpoint, it broadens your perspective and that it makes you more open to hearing divergent viewpoints, to seeing more possibilities, it's an opening, it's a broadening sort of trait. And then the second part of her theory is build. It allows people to build relationship, to build, um, yes, to build relationship is actually a, a sufficient statement there. So if a, if a judge or a would-be judge walks in with that kind of temperament on the reactivity side, that's generally a good bet because that, is a person who is likely to treat people well, no matter what the job throws at her. And then if you pair that with a, gen with, um, a generally flexible and, and environment responsive self-regulation trait, then it's even more advantageous because that's a person who won't, you know, bring a, a regulatory hammer and think everything's a nail, right? That's a person who can kind of flow and roll and strategize and react. And that's a judge who's likely to do very well by people, right? Likely to act with greater patience, greater kindness, which again, doesn't mean giving people what they want, but it certainly will mean treating people well along the way. Um, and will also be able to flexibly handle challenges and is likely to be less prone to burnout. Where the opposite, unfortunately, is equally true. If you have somebody who comes in with a general negativity, a very high trait negativity, 
um, which it will be a propensity again to take offense, to create conflictual situations and then react to them, um, to maybe enjoy their power too much, to um, be unable to see the good in people or not care really about what they think. It's a lack of caring, right? It's a distancing set of emotions. And then if you pair that, as is unfortunately often the case with a very limited range of regulatory capacity, um, that's a judge who's likely to generate a lot of very negative behaviors that will alienate people and make people feel very, very unhappy with the courts. So that went on for a minute. Sorry about no, that. No, but that is so good. It makes me appreciate the question that, you know, if you're applying to law school or any job, you often get, um, what's a situation of, adver of adversity and how did you overcome it? Right. It puts a new context to understanding why we ask those kinds of questions and right. what the answers we're trying to get. We're not all trying to be judges when we get those questions in different interviews, but it makes a lot of sense. And I kind of want to completely rewrite now um, both the law school <laughs> application and I'm thinking about, um, you know, watching judicial appointments. And I'm like, oh, I, we might actually be asking the wrong questions. We might um, be asking the wrong questions. Yeah, it, exactly. So, no, I think that was a, a beautiful answer because it's really kind of getting us into how can we think about this in a deeper and more meaningful way because that's the point right. of this conversation of judicial temperament even if you're not going to be a judge all those things you mentioned reactivity regulation the environment you grew up in the broaden and the build those are all important for life and yes being a functioning contributing member of society so thank you for for that um answer i want to ask one other question because you've kind of brought it up a little bit earlier and I think it um, ties into what you just talked about is how can we teach judicial temperament then you know right some oh, of it yeah. is malleable some of it seems intrinsic um, some of the traits are stable obviously you're not the same as you were as a baby as when you're an adult but how can right. we teach it that's that's a really really wonderful question and it's one without a very clear answer so obviously we don't want to just kind of write people off and say, well, you know, your temperament, you're, you know, 45 years old, your temperament is what it is, you know, we can, you're fixed in time, and this is who you're always going to be, because everybody is always at least somewhat malleable throughout, throughout the life trajectory. However, again, that envelope of possibility will have flattened um, a little bit, or will have, our positionality within the envelope will be a, a little more fixed, a lot more fixed than it was when we were younger. So the question is, how can we encourage, and I'm just going to talk, this again applies to all people, but I'll just talk about judges. How can we encourage judges to make the most of whatever room within their envelope of possibility they have? Um, how do we say, well, you know, you can't, you're made of water vapor, you can't become an asteroid, um, but we would prefer you be a white billowy cloud than say a mackerel sky, right? How can we say, wh where's your room to grow? Now, I do think, I'm gonna, I said earlier, we don't wanna write people off. And I do mean that as humans, we should never write anyone off. I do actually think that there are some people who should never be judges. And I, and I think that part of, thinking in an appropriate way about judicial temperament requires us to acknowledge that. Um, 
everybody's a little bit malleable, but some people are not very malleable and their starting point is very, very bad. And so it's just not a risk we should take. And I call these um, the, the um, air balls, right? Like there are people who are kind of judicial temperament um, uh, slam dunks, and then there are people who are air balls. And I think of the slam dunks, again, as these people who are just walk up to the bench, you know, to that challenge with um, a very, very high level of trait positivity and a very, very high level of regulatory skill. And I think those are the people who at the end of their career were like, wow, that was not just a great judge, but a great person. And everybody who ever walked into that, that judge's courtroom felt like they mattered, even if they didn't get what they wanted, the journey was kind to them as kind as it could be. That's a judge who had courage, who knew that not everything's a nail and not everything's a hammer, right? If you read like laudatory statements about great judges at, you know, at the end of their careers, this is the type of thing people need to say. And what we're trying to do is predict at the front end, who's going to be that person, right? So those are our slam dunks, um, very good bets. But there are, again, these air balls. So if a person um, walks in to the potentiality of being a judge and they are, you know, caustic, sarcastic, rude, if there's a documented history of like, this is, you know, in their legal practice, for example, this is just how they tended to be highly argumentative, rude, dismissive of other people's concerns, um, kind of a one note or a one trick pony in terms of how they respond to things, um, enjoyed power, lorded it over other people, blow up or volatile or unpredictable. Um, in a way, and this is a roundabout way of answering your question, Olivia, maybe we can teach that person to have sort of an acceptable approach to judging, but why? I do think there's a, there's a risk profile there that is not worth it. Um, I think that the danger is so real and we don't really know. We can't fundamentally reorient someone's temperament. We can help them shape it in greater to lesser degrees, but why, why take that kind of risk? And so I, I do think that one outcome of taking this theory seriously is to just really mean it when you say like judicial temperament really does matter and it's not infinitely malleable. Some people literally should just not be judges. And if they're already judges, they should be removed. That I think that that is a true thing. But what about everybody else, right? So there's gonna be your slam dunks, there's gonna be your air balls, and then there's everybody else who's just on the team doing the best they can. So I think it's to those people really, Olivia, that your question most applies. And um, again, I don't have a magic answer on this, but I do know that they're the most promising target for helping judges make the best of the temperament they have um, is training on emotion regulation skills. And that again is an instance where we in law don't have to reinvent a wheel because there's a whole you know, part of psychology of, affect, of the world of affective psychology that specializes in that. Um, so there is good data that people can expand their repertoire of emotion regulation skills, especially kind of going back to what we were talking about of how we're all taught in law school, you may actually be a person with lots of potential for highly flexible environment responsive emotion regulation, but you kind of had it beaten out of you a little bit by legal training. So 
So part of it might actually just be like reintroducing a lot of us to those concepts and, and being trained in emotion regulations in the same way that say a, psych, a person who's looking to be a clinical psychologist or as you brought up counselors, like taking seriously our role as counselors and as human, human beings working in a human generated environment, right? So a lot of judges will take to that like fish to water because it actually is in their temperament bundle, but it's been kind of artificially curtailed by our training, if that makes sense. Um, and you literally can, and this is part of the work that I do, is, is bring judges together and talk to them with them about their challenges and talk with them about different ways one could respond, introduce them to different concepts about emotion regulation and, and allow them to practice using them, expand your repertoire. Um, you can also invite judges to be more honest about their emotional experiences and recognize them and think critically about how they've handled them. Ask, you know, I sometimes ask judges, like, tell me, tell me something you did on the bench that you profoundly regret, you know, or that, um, tell me about a time you went off on somebody, if that's ever happened. Um, how do you feel? Why do? Why did that happen? How do you feel about it afterwards? How might you have handled that differently? And get judges talking to each other about it. Um, just basically think of anything that would be helpful to you as a human in becoming more stable, less volatile, less reactive, um, more like the person you would like to be, and help judges do that. I think that's where the greatest hope lies. Yeah. Thank you. We have to think of judges as humans to be able to ask those questions and receive those answers without being in a frenzy, right? If judges are like, I did blow up at someone and this is what was going on. I think you mentioned earlier, oftentimes we think of judges as non-human, these kind of like static figures that have to be this way or aren't malleable or don't have emotions, but returning, like there's some reciprocity and saying, you know, this happened, let's talk about it. Um, right. Marissa, I want to pass it over to you. So um, you mentioned the difference between kind of like a propensity towards kind of positivity or positive reaction um, or reactivity. Positive reactivity trait. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah, and negative. And I know that you are kind of pushing back against the laundry list version of temperament, um, especially in the judicial temperament context but what would a desirable judicial temperament look like? Like what are the traits that you're kind of looking for? And then in within that, I'm kind of viewing your emotional re reactivity and emotional regulation um, components as like these gauges that kind of kind of be turned up or turned down. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And so like, where would those be set in this kind of scheme? Yeah, that's a great that's a great question, and that also gives me an opportunity to talk about different judicial environments and goodness of fit. So, you're you're quite right. So there are these two, again, these we can call them axes or buckets, right? But we do have the the re let's talk about them as gauges as the way that you just did, Marissa. So, um, again, these are not monoliths they're like gauges or dimmer switches in a way like somebody could be very 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 high in trait positivity um, but sort of medium in regulatory skill 
at the trait level, or they could be very, very high in negative emotionality, but relatively high on self-regulatory skill, which might mitigate some of the bad impacts of their negative emotionality, right? All things are possible. Um, and so again, we need to think of judicial temperament not as a thing, but as sort of a, a, a constellation or a profile that will then interact with an environment. But let me do say something about the, the gauge dimmer switch problem. So it is true that any combo is possible, um, but not all combos are equally possible. So it turns out just in the real world um, that people who are quite high in trait positive emotionality tend also to have higher trait levels of regulatory skill. And people who are very, very high in trait negativity tend also to have very low trait levels of regulatory skill. So when I talked about sort of our slam dunks and our air balls, people actually do sort into those extremes more frequently than you might think. Meaning that the person that I posited earlier, like somebody who's very, very high, say in trait anger, we say, well, maybe if they're high enough in regulatory skill, they can compensate for that. Like they want to snap at the person, but they can stop themselves and they can instead generate a polite behavior and a calm demeanor. And that's true, but it's not normal. It's unusual for somebody to have high negative, high regulatory. It's more normal if somebody has high negative to have low regulatory. Is this making sense? Yeah. So um, and at the same, by the same token, if a person has high positive, they're more likely to have higher self-regulatory. So, and then most people are going to be somewhere in the middle. So they'll be like, you know, positioned sort of like with, okay, you know, sort of medium levels of positivity, kind of low to medium levels of regulatory, et cetera. Um, so... If we think about environments, right, your slam dunk, your high positivity, high regulatory, that person will be predicted to be pretty good at any judging job that they get. Like that would be just be a person who would tend to find the things that are best about that job, tend to find the greatest satisfaction in whatever the job is, tend to treat people fair, very well along the way. We'll tend to, you know, again, handle all sorts of challenges with grace and with ease. We'll generate this nice set of behaviors, which is, you know, the, the patience, the flexibility, the caring, the broadening, the building, no matter what. Traffic court, family court, patent court, you know, patent cases in a federal court, whatever it is. The air balls will tend to um, bring all that badness to whatever the job is, right? So if they're in traffic court, they'll probably yell at the unrepresented people fighting their traffic tickets. And if they're on a federal appellate court, they'll probably be extremely unpleasant to their colleagues and create a lot of acrimony on the court. Like whatever it is, they're gonna, they're probably gonna cope badly in ways that cash out poorly for other people. What about everybody else, right? So most people, if they don't fall at one of those two extremes, most judges will be extremely, extremely environment dependent, meaning that, um, Again, even if it just bring it to the human level, if you think of people having wildly different temperamental traits in adulthood, um, they will still be very affected by environment. 
right? If you're somewhere in that middle ground of not being a slam dunk for an air ball, you will act differently depending on your situation. Like you will act differently in a law school class where the rules are very clear. Like if you were to shout out something in a class, you would be met with immediate rebuke. Um, you will not shout out um, even if you want to, right? Whereas if you're in a more open environment without those kind of rules, like a rally or something like that, you'll just shout out, right? Like the, the parameters of the environment and your understanding of what the rules are in an environment and the consequences for you if you were to violate those rules will drive you to different behaviors, some of which will be consistent with your temperamental urges or propensities, some of which will not. Is this making sense so far, Marissa? It's yeah, the same yeah. in judging, right? D judges have jobs. This is a work environment. Um, sometimes the rules of what a judge needs to do in any given situation are very, very clear. You know, like don't throw your stapler at, at the plaintiff, you know, and, um, and sometimes the consequences are also very clear. Um, so that will incentivize people to sort of act in a way that they may not be temperamentally inclined to, but, they, but they're being responsive to their environment. Um, problematically, however, most judicial environments are low constraint environments, meaning because of the extreme deference we give to judges, judges often kind of get to do what they want. And the consequences for them are not usually not very clear you know, judicial discipline is rare. It has to be fairly extreme behavior to be the, even the subject of discipline. Some judges are appointed for life. Some judges, even if they're elected, they'll never get unelected because of the nature of partisan politics where they are, right? You, you see what I'm saying? Like there's a lot of low constraint um, on purpose. Like we construct judicial environments like that on purpose so judges can do hard things you know, and make rulings that may be unpopular, but are legally correct and necessary. A downside of that low constraint environment is it means whatever their temperamental traits that they walk in with will have a lot of room to roll. So one thing that I do think we should think about is um, not just like what is a given judge's temperamental profile, but how well or how poorly will that profile interact with the constraints of their exact judicial position. Yeah, right? the pairing of low constraints and let's say poor judicial temperament could be quite the, um, the, com the combination resulting in a situation where there's really not a lot of oversight and accountability. Correct. And also, you know, different, um, different judicial positions have different emotional parameters as well. Like, so a judge who's relatively, has a relatively disadvantageous emotional reactivity profile, like tends to be overwhelmed by sadness or anxiety, or tends to um, be very hot tempered and reactive in that way. You might not want to put that person in a family court, for example, because family court by its nature is going to trigger those things like guaranteed every day, like 50 times a day, which will probably overload that judge's regulatory capacity, whatever it is. Um, but that judge might do just fine 
in a different, wildly different kind of judging. Maybe they actually would be pretty good at the patent cases, or maybe they would be good at some sort of drier, more analytic area of the law um, where they are not interacting frequently with the public, for example, um, where they are constrained by the culture and rules of a particular court, you know. Um, so, so it's, we should think about like, you know, everybody comes with this bundle of traits and some malleability, um, but they'll also be a better or a worse fit with particular types of judging in particular types of places. Yeah, so it's really not just about the individual, it's also about the context and you can't really Completely. look at, at them in a vacuum. Correct. This actually really dovetails very well into my next question, um, which I think is going to be a little bit more potentially um, emotional, <laughs> maybe, maybe high emotional reactivity on this one. So in your writing, you've used the past examples of Justice Brandeis and Justice Kavanaugh, Supreme Court appointments from very different times in American history that both resulted in an abundance of public discourse surrounding their fitness. Um, and you use these as a way to um, show, showcase conversations surrounding judicial temperament. Correct. Present day, we're currently witnessing the confirmation hearings of Ketanji Brown Jackson, the first right. black woman nominee to the Supreme Court. And we're witnessing a diametrically opposed um, standard of behavior being applied to um, to her than we saw for Justice Kavanaugh very recently. Um, so, you know, acknowledging that Black women in our society are consistently held to a higher standard, especially when it comes to emotional regulation. Mm -hmm. I'm curious how you would propose the conversation of judicial temperament be one that is neutral or, or how could these conversations about temperament be separated from prevailing, say, socio-psychological values or in regard to different demographics, or do they even need to be separated? Yeah, that, that is a fantastic question for, again, for which, again, I have no easy answer except to say it is unquestionably true. Um, it, to my mind, this is part of the problem with having temperament or judicial temperament be such a ill-defined concept in our current legal discourse because it allows it to be selectively weaponized. Um, and it's very easy to just say, well, that person has a good temperament or that person has a bad temperament. Um, and it turns out that that's really a smoke screen for lots of other things that, that you're saying about that person. Like with Brandeis, the idea was that his, the people who attacked his judicial temperament were motivated by anti-Semitism. Um, you know, and this is, this is a recurrent, this is a recurrent thing. Justice Sotomayor um, was severely criticized in her Supreme Court confirmation hearings on questions of temperament because it, people suggested that she was too quick-tempered or too angry um, and she had to, or that she might have too much empathy, which were kind of actually opposing things to say. So again, it's like if you have a undefined construct, you can just kind of wield it any way you want. It doesn't have to be internally consistent, right? Where um, she had to very aggressively backpedal herself from empathy where Justice Alito, for example, in contrast in his confirmation hearing was affirmatively invited by literally the exact same senators um, to show his empathy and talk about his 
feelings about immigrants and children. So one person was encouraged to sort of warm up, you know, um, and show some some warmth and kindness. And one person was um, actively incentivized to cool down, right, and not show those exact same qualities. That is not a coherent thing. That is, and and we should at least not be incredibly incoherent in ways that map onto social stereotypes and expectations, for example, of white people, non-white people, men and women. Um, so it's hard, again, not to draw those same conclusions in the Kavanaugh hearing, and I'm not trying to opine on the judicial temperament of either um, Justice Kavanaugh or um, Judge Brown Jackson, but I am I do feel free to opine on, on the way we talk about it. Um, and I think many people have observed, I think correctly that if Justice Brown Jackson had um, yelled and, and issued kind of, um, if she had yelled, cried, any of the things that Justice Kavanaugh did in his hearing, um, if she had done any of those things, I think her temperament would have been roundly attacked and, and her, her candidacy might have been toast at that point. So again, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to be misunderstood to say that when Justice Kavanaugh reacted in that way at his hearing that that was evidence of a poor temperament. I think it's a little more compliment, uh, uh, complicated than that. Nor do I want to say that Justice, that, uh, pardon me, Freudian slip, that Judge Brown Jackson's um, restraint from exhibiting those behaviors is evidence of a judi good judicial temperament either. I think that's also too, too easy. Um, that I would call that as an instance of environmental constraint, um, that he, Justice Kavanaugh, did not feel constrained in his behaviors in the way that Judge Brown Jackson feels constrained. And that is true. Those are true judgments of the world. He was not constrained in the way that she's constrained. So to me, that's more about us and what constraints do we put on what emotional behaviors do we think are permissible in women, for example, as opposed to men, um, people of color as opposed to uh, white people. And I think that is a, um, so the question you asked, Marissa, is how do we solve that problem? Do we have a concept of judicial temperament that is neutral across those conditions and therefore if we apply it faithfully, we can avoid the corrupting poisonous influence of social expectation and bias? Or does the construct itself have to account for those things, right? I do not know. I, I'm generally suspicious that there are sort of magic neutral rules that one can in a biased world apply faithfully in a way that avoids bias. I do, however, think that um, having a scientifically grounded, again, like having a concept of judicial temperament that has some ground truth to it, as opposed to just being whatever we want to say at any given moment, I do think that we'll do a better job because at least I think then it forces, if we're gonna use it in a wildly inconsistent way, at least it'll be more obvious, right? And I think it has a truth forcing um, function where we say, oh, the construct is the same, you know, but we're just applying it wildly different here because you're a black woman. That would at least be an honest thing, 
that would force a conversation on that instead of us thinking that we're actually having a coherent conversation about judicial temperament, which we're not. Yeah, no, thank you very much. I think that's, uh, that definitely highlights the complexity of the situation. And um, I'd be curious to see how, how if and or when something like this does get applied, how that would actually change the conversation surrounding right. Um, which I would love to come back to in a moment, but I'm going to hand it over to Olivia. Yeah, so I just want to say thank you, Terry, for for making it plain on how complicated it is. Um, I want to jump into a little bit about something that you brought up in your scholarship, which is the difference between kind of judicial temperament and intelligence, because we do want our judges to be intelligent, but you kind of talk about those things as different or how they may relate or respond to one another. Can you still, can you talk a little bit about the difference of those and maybe where they overlap um, and why it's important to understand them as different or also complementing each other? Absolutely. So Olivia, what you're bringing up is something that I think if you're building a construct, it's just as important to get clear on what the thing is as it is to get clear on what it is not. And I think it's that boundary drawing of what judicial temperament is not helps us have a clearer concept of what it is. Um, and so judicial temperament is not everything we want in judges. And that's actually kind of one problem, again, with the either with a laundry list or the cipher <clears throat> approach judicial temperament is that uh, it's sort of piling everything that we think is good or bad about a judge into this concept of temperament. It's very important to say what temperament is and what it is not. And I've done my, my level best to say what I think it is, which is these deep-seated traits of going to emotional reactivity um, and self-regulation. I'm also trying to do my level best to say, and here's what we can tell from psychology about what it is not. Um, what it is not is one factor that you've mentioned is intellect, um, raw intelligence. Um, that is not temperamental. Um, that is something that is characteristic of people and it is, a, it is a factor on which people vary wildly, but it's not rooted in temperament. <clears throat> um, it's rooted in other aspects of the way we're stitched together and it also interacts with environments, right? <clears throat> so by the time we're grown-ups, we have lots of um, lots of characteristics that um, are part of our personality. This is a, an interesting kind of fuzzy line in, in psychology of like where does temperament start and personality begins. Again, it's a longer conversation than we can have here, um, but even when we're thinking about just kind of the, the human, um, the, in, the interpersonal and intrapersonal aspects of the human, there's something we call personality. Um, and within that personality, there's temperamental traits, but there are also things that aren't personality at all. So just recognizing again, that these are hard questions, even within psychology, I think, you know, again, the great thing about law is we get to take what we need and leave the rest. And here's, I think, taking what we need is intelligence is not that, right? Intelligence is not personality. So that gives us some freedom to say, okay, we're gonna look for a judge's temperament. We're gonna look for an adequate intellect. And then we're gonna look at what is called abilities and beliefs, which are also not temperamental, nor are they personality driven. So abilities would be like, how, how good are you at legal analysis, right? Um, it's what we all get trained for. That's an ability, that's an acquired ability. 
Um, and that is a thing on which people vary and we would prefer judges who are, have pretty high legal analysis abilities. Um, we would also like to have judges who have a particular set of declarative beliefs. Beliefs are also not temperamental. Beliefs are things that we acquire throughout our lives um, and we invest in some and not others. So for example, it is true that in the United States, we would prefer to have judges who have a belief and say racial equality, the value of diversity, non-discrimination principles, the inherent worth of each human being. You know, think these are these are beliefs that people have or they do not have, or they have them in various con, you know sort of convoluted or or sometimes contradictory ways. Um, we would like to have a belief that um, part of the value of a legal system is some predictability and some flexibility. We'd like, right? So you can go on and on and you can fill in the belief structure that you would like judges in a democracy and a well-functioning democracy to have. And those are not temperamental. And often people um, act as if they are and they're not. So it's like, this is, um, can't characterize it as a pet peeve, but this I think is a good example of where the conceptual bleed actually does some, some harm. So the ABA, definition of judicial temperament actually has a belief aspect to it, which is essentially a commitment to diversity. It's very, and it's very common, other, you know, other sort of practice-oriented definitions of judicial temperament also have that particular belief system listed in temperament, um, and it doesn't belong there. That's actually not part of temperament. Um, that is a belief. So, and I think that matters not just to be nitpicky, but I do think boundary drawing matters because it, it's very easy for it to get lost, for that element to get lost within this huge sprawling, ill-defined construct of judicial temperament as it's currently used. And it kind of, it's so important that it actually should stand alone. It's also intention. I think part of the reason why it ends up in the temperament bucket is like, it's kind of the bucket for homeless ideas in a way. We just kind of throw them in there because we don't know where else to put them. And the ABA, for example, like all judicial selection bodies, or um, is trying to pull something very difficult off where they purport to be ideology neutral, because that's also a value we have in our democracy. Um, and so I think it's a little bit of a, of a dodge to throw things like commitment to diversity into temperament. What I think we need to do is to say, we're generally ideology neutral, except for certain non-negotiable aspects of ideology, for example, a commitment to equality and diversity, because that's the kind of society we need, right? So I think um, getting back to your original question, Olivia, I do think that it's really important that we know that temperament is real. Temperament is consequential. It will drive behaviors. Um, temperament is something that we can change, but not infinitely. So we shouldn't expect ourselves to, but it's not the entire package. We also need people with an appropriate level of intellect to carry out the type of judging that they're going to be asked to do. Um, we need people who have adequate legal training to be able to learn the aspects of the job they don't already know and to implement them competently. And we need people among other things with at least an acceptable level of ideological commitment to the ideas of diversity, freedom, and that 
and equality that undergird a democratic society. Um, failure to have any of those things is disqualifying, right? So you could have the greatest temperament in the world, but if you have an ideology of non-equality of human beings in a democratic society, I don't want you to be a judge, right? Similarly, if you have a great temperament, a great level of ideological commitment to diversity, but you're literally not intellectually capable of doing the kind of judging we're asking you to do, I don't want you to be a judge either, right? So I, I think that the more that we can get particulated about all these parts, the better bets we're making at the outset um, in terms of who we want on the bench. Yes, thank you. It sounds like once we get clear on judicial temperament, we can get honest about so many other things. And I love that. That's um, a wonderful way of putting it. Yeah, Marissa, I want to throw it back to you because I could go on forever about this point, but I, I want to hear what you have to say. Yeah, me too. Um, but I'm actually really curious. You've been doing this interviewing and research and kind of speaking with judges and getting to know diff different judges in different judicial communities for a long time. Um, could you share with us an example of something that totally took you by surprise that you've discovered huh. in your research? Sure. Um, there are so many things that have taken me by surprise, but I'll just, pardon me, I'm hiccuping. Um, so, so there are so many things that have taken me by surprise, but I'll go with the one that pops immediately into my head. So there's a narrative in people who study judges or think about judging that judging is extremely isolating and that there, and there's some literature on this saying that, you know, judges on the whole are extremely isolated and that isolation is, um, extremely unpleasant to experience and also very um, detrimental potentially to their mental and physical health. And I'm interested in that. And it is true that a lot of judges have talked about isolation. So, but what happens if you talk to a large group of judges and you ask all of them a question about isolation, they will position themselves along a continuum. Um, and it will be a full continuum. Like you'll have people at the continuum of like, I'm so isolated, I can barely handle it. Um, or I am not isolated at all, not even a tiny little bit. And you'll see distribution across that continuum in ways that to me are very surprising. And so I think it, for me, it's, well, it's independently interesting just because isolation is, is important um, to understand. Um, but it's, to me, really reinforces this need to investigate and not assume, and also to investigate in a way that allows for all judicial voices to be heard. Because usually I think the reason that this narrative has, <clears throat> has developed is that the judges who are most isolated and who find the isolation most distressing are the ones who are gonna be talking about their isolation. And if people are not feeling isolated, there aren't many opportunities to go out and be like, I just want the world to know I don't feel isolated, <laughs> right? But if you feel very isolated and you're distressed, you might say, talk about that at a conference. You might talk to a therapist about it. You might, any of the number of ways that the, you know, this information gets forward. So I, I really think it's important just to listen to judges in a very broad-based way. Some judges like isolation. They're like, this is the best job I've ever had because I can actually sit and listen to myself think. Um, some judges are extremely introverted and they're like, this is actually kind of great. 
Um, some judges are not, you know, some judges find it very distressing. Some judges are literally physically isolated. Like I'm the only judge in my courthouse and there's no other courthouse for 250 miles. So I talk to the people in the mail room, right? And some judges are like, oh, I am on a hallway with 17 other judges and we all have coffee together every day. Like their, their material realities differ and their psychological experience of isolation differs. And the one doesn't always follow the other. The person who's the only judge in the courthouse might actually like that. And the person who, who is on the busy hallway actually might kind of wish people would go away and shut up for a while. It really varies, right? So I think that's, that's what came to my mind, Marissa, when you said just share one thing that was surprising. I have been continually surprised by the variation. It's almost like judges are all humans. Almost, right? <laughs> Thank you for that. That's really interesting. I guess I never really thought that much about kind of the workplaces of judges. Like it's yeah. such an, it's such a different side of the perspective that I've just never put myself in. So mm -hmm. it's really interesting to hear about. I could talk about this for ages, but I'm going to ask my last question because I know we're running low on time. Um, so as a law professor, you teach crim and juvenile justice. Um, and you've spent a lot of time in your career researching juvenile justice um, mm -hmm. and criminal law. And so I'm curious if you could just give a short answer about kind of the link um, between criminal justice, maybe specifically within the juvenile realm and judicial temperament and how um, one is impacted by the other, or how juvenile justice is impacted by like judicial neutrality, say. Absolutely. So again, there's a long answer there and a short answer. Um, but I mentioned earlier, you don't want to stick every judge in family court, right? And so that makes a lot of the point right there. You don't want to stick every judge on juvenile uh, duty. Um, some judges will thrive in that environment and some will not. Some will get overwhelmed by the sadness. Some of them will be unable to handle sort of the tragedy that is every time a child shows up in a juvenile courtroom, it's a tragedy, something has gone wrong and it may be a greater or lesser tragedy, um, but it's, it is a tragic situation. No child should be in that situation. Um, and the job of the juvenile court judge traditionally is to, to try to look not only at what the child has done, but why the child has done it, who is this person, who is this little person, um, and how have they got to that place, and to treat the court as a helping environment, consistent as best one can be with public safety. It is a hard thing to pull off. It requires an almost infinite trove of openness and compassion and positivity because otherwise you will get callous and you will get burned out um, and then you won't you literally won't be able to do that job because the job of a juvenile court judge is not just to find facts like what happened but it, it literally is actually to figure out the why and what is within the state's power to do to reset that child's trajectory again consistent with public safety so it's a good example because we think of the the temperamental traits of the juvenile court judge is not being ancillary to the job, the ability to do the job that is integral to it. And I think we would do well to make that same assumption of literally every sort of judging. Um, I think it's more obvious in juvenile cases or in criminal cases. 
Um, but it's in a way we should regard that as kind of a tip of a spear, like we can see it, you know, and it's, but it's true in every kind of judging, just true in a different way, because all, you know, the job of a juvenile justice um, judge is a different thing than the job of a bankruptcy judge, right? So what we need is we need a temperamental bundle that's going to interact well with the parameters of that job. Um, and it should be obvious to us that a very high um, quantum of dispositional kindness is a requisite, a job requisite for a juvenile court judge. But it's also a requisite for being any kind, any kind of judge, I think, just less obviously so. I'm going to share one quote here from a much beloved judge who wrote, um, if we judges could possess one attribute, it should be a kind and understanding heart. The bench is no place for cruel or callous people, regardless of their other qualities and abilities. And I think, again, what the value of looking at something like being a juvenile court judge is, is that it's so obvious in that context, and that can open our minds to saying it's equally true in all contexts, but perhaps not so obvious. Yeah, it hits me as kind of like the compounding factor for a kid that's already landed in criminal court. Um, judicial temperament plays this like compounding role um, and goodness of fit can really have just horrifically detrimental effects, maybe more or, so in that context. Than, or wonderful you know, effects. Or I wonderful, right. To a, I talked to a judge recently who's had an incredibly long judicial career and done almost everything, you know, has just talk about goodness of fit, this judge has actually been a really good fit in pretty much everywhere he's been, again, because I think he's one of our slam dunks. But um, looking back on his career, he actually, the, the judicial appointment that he had that he loved the most was being in juvenile court. Um, and he loved it where some judges will say like, my time in family court was a living hell and I was very happy to get out of it because I couldn't handle it. This judge was like, I've never had another judicial position that allowed me to kind of bring all parts of myself together and to really be able to simultaneously apply law and also apply um, just the qualities of kindness. And because the job is literally like, can we help this child and this family and this community? And if so, how, and then go about doing it. And he was like, there's an efficacy and a creativity and a humanity to that, that has been hard to find in my other positions. So again, um, one judge will look fondly on that for the rest of his days. And another job will, another judge will be unable to handle it even for a minute. And a lot of that is temperament. Yeah, I say this often about um, teachers and social workers and um, frontline healthcare workers, but it definitely applies in this context. It takes a really special constitution yes. to be able to do that every single day. Yep. Um, Olivia, I will pass it back to you. Yeah, thank you, Terry, so much. I have enjoyed our time together in this conversation. I hope our listeners are even more intrigued to read some of um, the research that you have uh, put out in the world on this on this very topic. It's so important. I just wanted to give you a chance before we close, if you had any final thoughts on judicial temperament or something you didn't get to say yet uh, before we head out. No, I've really enjoyed this conversation with both of you, and um, it makes me 
hopeful about the future of the legal profession that you as law students are thinking about these things and thinking about how you can bring your whole selves to your careers as lawyers, whatever it is you choose to be, and to start to rewrite that narrative um, where we chop off our emotions instead of accepting them as valuable parts of what we bring to any given situation that need to be recognized and often need to be managed, right? We don't want to be sort of run by our emotions, but we have a more of a chance of being blindly run by our emotions if we aren't conscious of them. And if we don't assume that they are real things that matter, that will help us in some situations, hurt us in others. And our job is to really know the difference. And that takes attention and flexibility and practice. And the more you as young lawyers can be thinking and talking about that now, the better chance you have of pulling that off. And, you know, hopefully you don't go on to be sort of callous and cruel and burned out, you know, um, burnout is just being callous and cruel towards yourself, right? And then it expands to how we treat people in the world. So it gives me a lot of hope that you guys have chosen to focus on this and that, and that the comments that you've made during this conversation have so clearly shown that that's something that you are going to try to do throughout your careers. And that makes me very happy. Thank you. I think that's beautiful. Care person, Alex, right? That's the Jesuit care for the whole person, Terry. You right. wrapped it right in there beautifully. Um, and for those of you who don't know, Loyola is a Jesuit university, which is why I brought that up, bring it full yep. circle. Thank you so much. Um, and that is this episode of the podcast. That's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Visit our website at thepodvocate.com for more information on this episode and our guests. The Podvocate is produced by WLUW, the student-run independent radio station broadcasting from the School of Communications at Loyola University, Chicago. Our senior editors are Olivia Ashe, Emmett Harrington, and Lenny Reinhardt. Our associate editors are Christy Paradis and Marissa Polowitz. Our editor-in-chief is Leanne Jossen. Special thanks to Professor John Dane for providing the resources and support to make this show possible, and to Terry Maroney for taking the time to speak with us today. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podvocate.